0: Hey, I'm Noble. Thanks for checking out the message today. I'm so thankful that you're here, and we would love to connect with you. An easy way to do that is you can text River Connect one word, to 97000. You can also go through our website and find out more about us and see what we have coming up. Lastly, if you'd like to give to the River Church, you can text an amount to 84321 or you can go to the giving tab at the top of the page. I just want to thank you for being with us today and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye now. Good morning church. So good to see you all. My name is Patrick Bicknell. I am the student director here at the River Church. So excited to be here and be able to preach this message this morning. Uh, one thing that's uh, I kind of want to address. I keep getting a ton of questions today. Uh, if, if I'm going up to camp with the kids, and I'm just always saying, "No way, Mm-mm. I did my time, I did my two weeks with the students," and I said, "Thank the Lord for men like Mitchell because." They're going up there with the kids and, and, you know, having a week with them. But they're going to have a great time. And honestly, what we should all be doing, let's let's pray for them this week. Uh, as the Lord has already done so many amazing things up at camp with our student camps. And I can't wait to hear what else he's going to do up at kids' camps. So just make sure you're praying for them and uh, just hoping that the week goes good for them up there. Um, and also this morning as I was putting on my Join the Team shirt, it just made me realize how fast this last year just went. Because way too fast. If I put this shirt on again, it means it's already been a year since the last joined the team. And it's just crazy to me. But it's, it's just so amazing as we're coming to the end of our Revelation series. Um, just, I hope it's been fruitful for you the way it has been for me to encourage you to draw closer to the Lord and just to see all the amazing things uh, God's doing, especially with our church. Uh, and again, just want to encourage you guys, if you want to be a part of that work, if you want to find a place to serve uh, and just see the Lord do some amazing things, go out back after the gathering and get one of those menu cards and find out a place for you to sign up to serve. It would be an awesome opportunity. Uh, but one thing that I was doing, I was preparing for the sermon, I started thinking about this video that I saw a couple years ago as I was kind of uh, on social media. I was scrolling Twitter one day and this video came up about this man, Stephen Fry, who was being interviewed. Uh, if you don't know him, he's an English actor, comedian, director. Uh, he was being interviewed by a guy and something about Stephen is he is a very outspoken atheist. Very outspoken about his disbelief in God and all these things. And so the interviewer wanted to ask him a question. And he posed him with this question. He says, what if you get to the pearly gates and you see God? What will you say to him? Knowing this man's disbelief in God, he just wanted to see what a response would be to what if everything you didn't believe ends up being true. And his response was so shocking. He says, if I were to see God one day, I would would ask him this. Bone cancer in children, how dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that it is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly evil. Why should I believe in a God who creates a world that is full of so much injustice and pain? An utterly blasphemous comment. But I think this man's response, this man's response to his final standing before God when he has to give an account for his life, the final day before God renders his judgment is what I think many non-believers think it's going to be like when we stand before his throne. It's a belief that I think is kind of held throughout our world where they think they have this idea that God is like man. God is like you and me. He's just like any other judge we see here on Earth, whether it's in the courthouse, the Supreme Court, movies, TV shows. They have this idea that God is like man, and that they're going to be able to give their case to Him, that they're going to be able to accuse God for the way that they lived. Think they're going to get to His throne one day and the final standing before Him, and they're going to give all the reasons for why it's all God's fault. Say things like, "Why would You let me sin?" Why would you allow that evil to happen to me? That's why I don't believe in you. Or you are the reason for all the wrong in the world, God. They think that this is going to be the time where they get to plead their case and accuse God for the wrongs done in this world. But as we're going to see, as we continue reading in Revelation 20, our final day in court, our final standing before God, the final time before God gives us his judgment of where we're going to end up, it's going to be nothing like that. It's not going to be a trial. It's not going to be a hearing. It's going to be a sentencing. God is going to give his judgment and his verdict for the way that we've lived our lives. We're going to see that as we continue in Revelation 20. Picking up in verse 11. We'll be in Revelation 20. If you have your Bible, go there. Starting in verse 11, it says this. each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Before we get to the final verdict being laid down for the believer and the non-believer, before we see what their eternal destinies are, where they're going to end up, What the judgment is going to be. I think it's important that we paint the scene. We paint the setting that we're going to find ourselves in on that day. The same way John did as he's given this revelation. He says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Now, where we're at here. In these verses is right in between two big things. It's right after what just happened in Revelation 20, which is the millennial kingdom of Christ. After our Lord's glorious, majestic, holy reign as king on earth, his perfect kingdom enacting in perfect justice, perfect rule and perfect authority. It's in between that and the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. Earlier in Revelation 20, we had just saw Satan was let free after the thousand years and he has been defeated. The last attempt to overthrow God was made and it was foiled. Then what we see here is the absolute destruction of heaven and earth as we know it. As I started reading this verse, I got this passage to preach on. It kind of stood out to me and confused me a bit when it says, From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Kind of confused me, but I was thinking, is, is this throne where heaven and earth begin and we see it kind of go out into the universe? Or what does it mean? But as I studied it and looked it up, what's happening here is that the material world that we see, the spiritual world that is around us, it is going to be absolutely disintegrated. It's going to be dissolved burnt up. It's going to become uncreated. What we're going to see is something that goes against all what modern science is telling us that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. God is going to represent and enact his absolute authority over his creation as creator. And he's going to uncreate all of it. We're going to see it as things we see like in these verses in 2 Peter 3 verses 10 through 12 which says because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Isaiah 51.6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. This is going to be one of the most amazing spectacles we've ever seen. Now, if you know me, I love Marvel movies. Love Star Wars, these action movies. I love to see it because we watch it, right? Some of those scenes are just so amazing. The power in it, the visuals of it, it's incredible. But all these things that we can even imagine, or all the things that we've seen, aren't even a fraction of the power that God's going to display at this time the absolute power that God will display is unlike anything we have seen or can even imagine. A power that has never been displayed before is going to happen. Yet even in this insane moment of everything as we know it becoming uncreated, something that is so incomprehensible for us, in this moment, it will pale in comparison to the part of this scene that will grip our entire attention. The part of this scene that will have our eyes so fixated on it that we can't even notice anything else. The part of this scene that's going to make us so in awe and enamored with what is before us. And what that is, is in the midst of everything that we know it, being burnt up, dissolved, destroyed, there will be a great white throne. And with clear eyes, we're going to see a righteous, holy, majestic judge sitting on it. We're going to see our God as judge, perfect and holy, sitting on his throne and ready to enact his judgment. Daniel 7 speaks of this throne. Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 through 10 says this. As I looked thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hairs of his head like pure wool. His throne was with fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand, thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. We can't even begin to imagine the scene that we're gonna see here. The Ancient of Days, the one who's older than time itself, the Holy One, the Alpha and Omega, as Revelation calls it, the Great I Am sitting on His throne. What's so amazing about the two descriptions here in Daniel and Revelation is what the white throne denotes. You see, God isn't making this awesome throne with fire and all the angels serving him just to display how cool he is. He's not just trying to give us a cool thing for him to sit on and just be like, wow, that's awesome. But what the throne is demonstrating is the absolute righteousness, holiness, and justice of the judge who sits on it. As we see the white throne, what it's meant to tell us is that the judge who sits here is nothing but perfect, nothing but righteous, nothing but just. It tells us what the character of our God is, and that we can trust the judgment that he's about to enact. Thousands upon thousands serving him, the divine angels When it's described in the Bible and people see angels, they're fearful of it. Yet thousands upon thousands of these are going to be at his throne serving him. I can't even imagine we're going to hear like that song we just sang. Holy, holy, holy. The fire that's blazing out from this throne. There's going to be 10,000 upon 10,000 standing before him. An innumerable amount of people. And the court is sitting in judgment. A quote I saw says this by MacArthur. The psalmist had a glimpse of it. Daniel had a glimpse of it. Even Paul understood it. A great blazing throne of divine, holy energy that uncreates the whole universe and damns the whole sinning humanity. The immensity of it is incomprehensible. So we have our scene here. This is the place we're going to be on the day of the Lord. The absolute power on display. The authority he's going to display over his creation as creator. The righteousness, holiness, glory that we're going to see. And now we move on to our sentencing. Now we move on to the sentencing that God is going to give as he sits as judge and court is in session. Going back to Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15. Reading again, it says And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's some disputes on how these judgments will take place. So very briefly, I just wanted to hit the two views that are had on this. Because in scripture, if you're familiar with it, there's three main judgments that are brought up. And the first one is the judgment in Matthew 25 of the sheeps and goats. What this judgment is, is it's just Jesus declaring who's going to enter into the millennial kingdom with him and who's not. The, the sheeps being those who are his and the goats being those who are not his. The next judgment is the bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ, which is the judgment of believers' works. This is where our works as believers that we've done in our lives, we're gonna be judged and and will be determined our reward for what we've done for him. And the next one is this great white throne judgment where the judgment of unbelievers for the rebellion against God will be given. So simply put, this first view holds that all three of those judgments happen at the same time here at the great white throne. And the other one holds they all happen at separate times. Now, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because whichever view you hold, right, there's secondary opinions and issues within the church. We can debate this. We can have disputes over this. We can talk about this. But what, one thing we must never do, we must never forget or lose sight of the facts that we know of at the great white throne judgment. There's clear facts that we're told of with this scene in Revelation 20. And the first one is this, that Christ will be the righteous judge. Christ is going to be the one who sits on this throne and judges the world. And that unbelievers will be judged by Christ and they will be punished according to the works they had done. And the reason it's important for us to understand these facts, to not forget these facts or lose sight of them, because there's many churches in America, many beliefs today that are saying, this isn't going to happen. You can live however you want. There's no hell. There's no judgment of God. We're not going to stand before him one day. We all go to heaven and it's all going to be great. The Bible makes it clear. There is coming a day when everyone will stand before the throne. There's no avoiding it, as many people are right now. They're avoiding coming to God and acknowledging Him as Lord. There's no hiding. There's no escaping this. There's nowhere else to go. There's no deferring and saying it's someone else's fault for the way that we lived. There's no running away from standing before His throne. All who have lived and all who have died will stand before him and will give an account for their life. A quote I saw said this There is a tel- terrible fellowship there. The dead, small and great, stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Little men and paltry women whose lives were filled with pettiness, selfishness, and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Whose very sins were drab and dowdy, mean, spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common, and cheap. The great will be there. Men who sinned with a high hand, with dash and courage and flair. Men like Alexander and Napoleon, Hitler and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the world for their stage and who died unrepentant at last. Now one and all arranged and on their way to be damned, a horrible fellowship congregated together for the first and last time. Doesn't matter who you are, what time period you lived in, what status you have, great and small, if you died unrepentant, not surrendering to the Lord... You will stand before God one day and give an account for your life. And the verdict that will be given is judgment and an eternity in hell. Now, there's two sentences here in Revelation 20 that will be rendered at this judgment, and two sources of justification that our judge will use to hand down his verdict. And the first one is this the first one is the books, which will condemn unbelievers. Verse 12 says, and books were opened. What these books laid out before God represent is the works you've done in your life. If you're an unbeliever and you stand before God, these books are gonna be laid out before God. And it's going to be everything both good and bad that you did. Now, the bad stuff in these books, we can understand why there would be judgment rendered for those. Right? We all know our hearts, we know what we've done, the, the sins we've committed, the things we've thought, the stuff we've said, we can understand why those would be against our case. And those who are standing before God in judgment there, they'll get that. But there's gonna be plenty of people there who are standing before the throne, who are going to try and plead their case and say, my good outweighs my bad. I, I, I didn't do all these horrible sins that some other people did. There's even going to be people there who call themselves Christians. People there who are going to say, I was religious. I believed in God. And scripture tells us what the response of these types of people will be like. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some of these people are going to be standing before God, and they're going to go, Lord, Lord. They're going to call out his name. They're going to say, look what I did. What do you mean I'm guilty? I did mighty works in your name. I served at the church. I went to church for 30 years every Sunday and Wednesday. Cast out demons in your name. I did all these things. Look what I have done. How can I be guilty? I got baptized. I said a prayer. I did all the things I needed to do. And in their response, they condemn themselves because it shows that they have missed the point of everything. In the response of starting with I, they realize, they, they miss the point that it's not about what we've done that saves us. It's not about proximity to holy and good things. It's not about saying you align yourself with the church, saying you're a Christian. If our response ever starts with I, then we've condemned ourselves because it shows that we think we have saved ourselves based on what we have done and not based on what Christ has done for us. And not only this, not only these things, but the things we've done, the things we've we've placed above living for Christ will be displayed in those books and they will condemn us as well. So many people in our world are living for things that cannot save, satisfy, or fulfill us. We are so consumed with our career. So many people are just living for their job and all the money they can make. How high up in their company they can go. The status they can gain. The houses they can have. And they live for these things, and they're so blinded to the fact that these things are condemning them to hell. And that's not to say these things are bad. I pray the Lord blesses you in ways you can't even imagine, blesses you with good jobs, blesses us with money so that we can go into the world and we can help the poor, we can help the needy, we can be a light for them. These things aren't bad things, they're, they're blessings from God. But many of us, especially because we live in America, are living for these things with no regard for God. These things are bad if they lose the place that they should be in our lives. We put them on a higher priority than God. And when we live for these things and we pursue these things and we chase after these things with no regard for God, not living for him, we run after these things and we head straight to an eternity in hell. And the scary truth about this passage is that one day we will stand before God. We will give an account for our life. And I heard this illustration before by a pastor I love to listen to. He was speaking to a group of young adults in the 90s, and he had an article in a magazine uh, from Reader's Digest. And as he began to read the article, it was called The American Dream. And what was described in this article is this couple. They lived their whole lives. They they worked hard. They retired early. And they moved down to Florida. And it says the way they spend their lives, they go on the boat they have. The wife hangs out with the other housewives in the neighborhood. The husband plays golf. At the end of the day, they get in their golf cart. They drive down to the beach, and they collect shells. And the pastor says... What a tragedy of a life. People are spending billions to get this dream. America is selling this to us because one day they're going to stand before God and the last thing that they're going to say for the way they live their lives is, Look, Lord, my shell collection. Oh my and I like to just take that and say, Fill in the blank with what we're living for. Look, Lord, my career. Look, Lord, my retirement fund. Look how much I saved. Lord, look at all the vacations I went on and the amazing house I have. And the scary thing is that this is all you have lived for without surrendering to him, repenting of your sins and calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. If this is the last thing you live for and you come before God and give an account and show that this is all you live for, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And you'll be cast in the eternal lake of fire. These things cannot save us. They're fleeting. And again, that's not to say that these are bad things. I hope one day I can save up enough money to go live in Florida and go maybe preach the gospel down there, right? They're awesome things. But that's all you're living for. It's the only thing that your life is worth and amounts to. It's going to condemn us one day. Now, the second justification is the book of life, which renders the verdict to believers that they are saved. The only way that anyone is not cast into the lake of fire is if their name was found in the book of life. And what I love about Revelation is it actually gives us the entire title of this book. Revelation 13.8 calls it the the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And what is so beautiful about this book, the title of it, and the contrast we see between the books and the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And the reason I love this title so much is because it has nothing to do with me. This book has nothing to do with us. And if your name is found in it, it's all about that the lamb was slain. And honestly, I saw that and I said, thank God it has nothing to do with me. Because I think about all the things that I've done. The times I wanted to follow God and chased after a sin. The times I failed. The times I've fallen. I'm thankful that it's not based on my performance. And church, we should be thankful too that if our name's found in the book, it's not about what we did and what our performance was. It was only if the lamb was slain. This book, if your name is written in it, if it's found in it, it is all about the finished work of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with us. It's all about verses like these. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the verse that many of us can quote, and the verse we love, John three sixteen through 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because Christ died for the unrighteous. Because Christ died for the unlovable. Because Christ died for the undesirable. Because he was rich in mercy. Setting aside some of the privileges of his deity. Walking among his created. Sleeping under the stars he made. Went to the cross and took their punishment. Took our punishment for us. We will have no other response. We will need no other response for why we're entering the new heaven and the new earth other than he paid the price for me. That's what we sit with. That's what we hope for. And one day we will hear the words all of us have been longing for in Matthew 25. We will hear those glorious words that if you've been walking this Christian walk for a while or even a little bit, you know the, the struggles it comes with, the, the hardships we have in this life. If we surrender to him and our name's found in that book, we're gonna hear these amazing words in Matthew 25, 23, which says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master we will hear these words not because of anything we have done, not because no amount of serving, no amount of years spent at church. We're gonna hear these things because the spotless, sinless Lamb of God has been slain for us. Now, church, I wanna challenge and encourage you with this. If you're sitting in here and you have not fully surrendered to the Lord, you're sitting here, and if you're being honest with yourself, you're unsure if you were to stand before God today, you were to stand before this judgment throne, stand before him and give an account for your life, you're unsure what your verdict would be. I encourage you, put your faith, repent of your sins, call on the name of the Lord today. Today is the day of salvation. I told our students up at camp, this tug you're feeling, the Holy Spirit that's calling you to himself, it's working in some of your lives today. Don't let that feeling go with you outside of here. I tell them, don't let it take you to the cabin. And the same way for us, don't let us take this feeling to our car, to the lunch we're about to go to, to our home and the rest of our day. If you're having this feeling, you're unsure, I don't know where I would be on this final day. I encourage you, if you call on the name of the Lord today, you will be saved. Today is the day to do it. Don't wait another minute. And if you have done that, if you are a follower of Christ, and you're feeling the burden that, just like me and many of the people are feeling in here, for those who are lost. I'm sure just like me, many of you, when you heard of these words in Revelation 20, that one person came to your mind, that family member, that friend, that coworker, and you start to feel burdened for them. And it starts to almost break your heart because you know where they would be at one day if they continue to live in unrepentance. I encourage you at this, don't let this trouble you, but rather let this motivate you to go to those who are around us, who are lost, who do need to hear the good news. Let this burden you feel lead you to trust in the Lord and say, my life is of no value. All I need to do is to preach the gospel. Go and tell them the good news. Don't wait another day. Don't wait for someone else to do it. There are so many people in our world, who are perishing all around us, family members, friends, coworkers, whoever it may be, who need the good news of Jesus. I'm gonna leave you with this verse. I love this verse so much, and it encourages me all the time. Romans 10, 12 through 15 says this, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is the part I love. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, we have the good news. How are they gonna believe if they don't hear? And how are they to hear if we aren't the ones to go and tell them? Read these verses. Read these warnings in Revelation 20 and Matthew 7 and let that motivate you to take the good news today to go out to those who you know are lost and who need the good news and tell it to them. Let that warning motivate you and give you a fire and say, I need the good news to get to them. Pray and trust in the Lord and he will do this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we're thankful that if our name's gonna be found in the book of life, it's not based on what we've done, It's not based on our performance, but it's based on you, the lamb who was slain. And I pray for all those in here that they would know they're saved by surrendering to you as Lord. And I pray for us as a church, for those of us who have surrendered to you, who do follow you, that you would use these verses to motivate us and encourage us to go out into the world and to preach the gospel. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in the very precious name of Jesus.